Good morning, everyone. What a great buzz in the room today. Good morning and welcome to Medical Grand Rounds. And I am delighted today to have a friend of mine, Tony Lembo, here to give Medical Grand Rounds. He's going to be introduced to us by Brian Lacey. Brian is professor of medicine, and he's a, the chief of the section of gastroenterology and hepatology. He's the director of the GI Motility Lab. He's the new editor of the American Journal of Gastroenterology. He has many accolades, and we are delighted that Brian is leading that section. Brian, come tell us a little bit about Tony. Great. Well, good morning. Uh, I don't think I have enough adjectives uh, to really explain Tony's wonderful career, and we're all excited to have Tony here this morning. One, he's an amazing investigator, and whether you pick up the New England Journal, whether you pick up gastroenterology, whether you pick up the American Journal of Gastroenterology, you're going to see Tony's name in there. And Tony has really led the field in the last two decades in investigations and functional bowel disorders, focusing on chronic constipation and irritable bowel syndrome and functional dyspepsia and others. Um, Tony started his career at Amherst. They're still proud to claim him as uh, one of his graduates. He was then at Tufts. He went to the West Coast, uh, where fortunately he met his wife, Tracy, who's delightful. He did his residency and fellowship at UCLA and then stayed on for a year. And he's been at BI for the last 18 years. So this morning, we'll focus very quickly that Tony's going to speak to us about the power of placebo. And we're fortunate to have him here this morning. So Tony, thank you. Great. Well, thank you, and very kind, Brian, uh, to say those nice things. And it's a pleasure to be here. It's a beautiful area. And Brian assures me that the weather's always like this here, just like it is in, just like it is in Boston. Um, so let me just turn on my mic here. So this will be – I'm going to talk to you today about uh, the role of placebos. Um, it's an interesting field, one which I got involved with about 10 to 12 years ago, and I'll show you why we got involved with it, and something we don't really think about a lot that actually is a big part of medicine in general. And so I'm going to walk you through a little bit of the, sort of the history of placebo, which is really the history of medicine. Okay, and I'll just take you through some early, early steps. But first, let's just define what placebo is. And these definitions, which you can see going back from the 1800s, to the more recent definitions, is actually, as you think about what placebo is, it's actually a pretty hard to define what placebo is. I think we all have our concept, and I bet everyone in this room has this idea behind it. We all, we all were trained in the, you know, in the era of randomized controlled trials, and I'll show you how that sort of changed our view of placebo, so we all have our concept. And I think maybe you'll see that my concept of placebo over the last decade working in this area has actually changed. And maybe you will or won't agree with us. And I'll have to say that not everybody agrees with us. We've had some, get some reviews on some of our papers that disagree with our, our role of what we call placebo, and that's, that's okay as well. Uh, so it's actually a hard definition. Uh, but the last one is, is reasonable. It's a medicine or procedure described for the psychological benefit for the patient rather than any physiological effect. Now let me just walk you through a little bit of the history of medicine, which is really the history of placebo. And this is a quote from Hippocrates, and it says, some patients recover their health simply through the contentment and the goodness of the physician. 
This is what we do day in and day in and day out. And this is going to be one of my themes is that placebo is not just going to be a pill that you're giving somebody, but it's going to be the whole healing process. Okay. Hippocrates said this, you know, thousands of years ago that it's not just, it's the whole healing of the physician. Uh, that's a big part of when someone improves, gets when someone improves their symptoms. Here is two treatments for gout. And I'm not going to, you don't even have to walk yourself through, you don't have to read all of them. These are two treatments a thousand years apart. And you can see how complex both treatments are, okay? It's not just handing them, a, handing them a treatment, but it's this whole ritual behind it. And again, this is the theme that I'm going to have. A, it's not only the doctor-patient interaction, but it's the ritual of medicine, which is a big part about this. And I suspect, as you all probably do, that patients felt better, and everybody believed that they felt better from their gout with both of these treatments. The concept here is that this is very, it's a ritual, a ritual effect, and I think we all would say that this is a, these are very powerful placebo effects uh, that occurred, and these, again, with the, with the, in the history of medicine. Moving on, in the 1800s, um, Thomas Jefferson and his pious fraud, we wrote about pious fraud, he said, one of the most successful physicians I've ever known assured me that, the, that he used more bread pills, drops of colored water, powders of hickory ash, than all other medicines uh, put together. Again, it's not, it's different types of placebo that were handed to, pa handed to patients, and it was the whole ritual uh, behind it. And of course, we know that these are probably not active treatments, but they were probably very effective. It became pretty clear um, from Alder, Oliver Wendell Holmes to Richard Cabot that, that well, these treatments were not actually active treatments. And so Oliver Wendell Holmes, and, and for those that don't know, he's the Holmes and Sherlock Holmes, um, an inventor of the modern day stethoscope, he really he realized that the drugs that they had at the time could, you know, as he says, could be sunk to the bottom of the sea. It would be all the better for mankind, all the worse for the fishes. <laughs> and Richard Cabot, you know, in the early 1900s, it was a pathologist at uh, MGH, and subsequently, because he realized that the treatments were so ineffective, that he instituted what's now known as the, you know, the weekly case series in the New England Journal of Medicine. And here he's talking about, I, I was brought up, as I suppose every physician is, to use placebo, bread pills, water subcutaneously. I doubt there is a physician in the room who's not used them by the bushels. Again, I think they realized that a lot of it was placebo, and they realized that patients were getting better. And I'm going to show you some clinical data that we have to show you that some of this is actually true. This may seem like old, ancient history to, all, to, to many of you, especially the, those in training. Um, but re is it really? If you look at this study, this was published in the New England Journal, and Bruce Mosley is an orthopedic surgeon. He's actually, he's actually the surgeon for the uh, Houston Rockets. Down in, and he realized that their surgery, their arthroscopic surgery, probably had no effect. So one of his earlier studies, when he was at the VA, took a group of patients, and they did a sham surgery in all of them. Okay? And they didn't actually, you know, didn't actually do any cutting, but they did sham surgery, followed these patients, and they reported improvement. He subsequently uh, did this randomized controlled trial with that preliminary data and was able to show that, as you can see in these, in, in these, in these three uh, graphs, one of which is the breedment. I'm sorry, I can't see the color, but they're all, you can see the lines are all about the same. The other is the lavage, and the other is just a placebo where they brought them to the OR, made some nicks in the, in the skin. And as you can see, they all felt better, including the placebo. So, so as we, including the placebo group, and if you think about what I showed you back a thousand years ago for the treatment of gout, here we go into an elaborate OR with doctors with white coats. Is it that different than what 
what they did thousand, a thousand years ago. We're just much more, a little bit more sophisticated, uh, but really it's this whole ritual effect. And I suspect in a, in a thousand years, people say this was kind of, you know, when they look back at osteoarthritis treatment, that this was a big ritual effect, a big placebo effect for it. Now we realize that it's not, it's, it is not a, more effective than doing nothing or giving someone a placebo. Um, and when it's no longer offered to patients regularly. But the shame of it is that patients felt better, as you can see with the placebo effect. So again, is it, is it something of ancient history? Well, this is a recent study. Uh, it was in JAMA, uh, uh, BMJ, a few years ago, where they surveyed U.S. physicians, a representative survey, and asking them if they, physicians use placebo, knowingly use a placebo, knowingly use a treatment that they know is not effective so pa because they think patients will get better. And the answer was that 50% of patients said that they had used a placebo or given patients a treatment that they didn't think was going to be effective, and they were using it as a placebo. So it's still alive and well in our practice. Well, what changed? This is the key moment in, uh, in medicine. The first reported randomized trial that was published in modern-day medicine, in medicine, appeared in 1948. It was the streptomycin treatment for tuberculosis, a randomized trial that was placebo-controlled. This was the very first one, and this actually changed the way we look at placebo and how we look at drug development. Prior to this point in time, to get a drug, to get a drug approved, all you need to do is give it to 100 patients, show that it improved their symptoms, which, as you can see, is not that hard to do, show that it was safe, and that drug was approved. After this, we had to have a randomized controlled trial, and that changed the way we think about placebo. Prior to this, we used placebo, or pe people used placebo regularly because it helped patients feel better. Now we use placebo to show that it's better than the, the treatment, and a placebo in all, which, in all of our trials, we're trying to reduce the placebo effect. And we think, actually, we should probably be trying to increase the placebo effect for certain diseases. This is subjective disease, and I'll show you more data about that um, in a minute. So this was a pivotal, tri a pivotal moment for medicine and a pivotal moment for the way we look at placebo and the way most of us have been brought up thinking about uh, placebo. I showed this slide uh, last night. Uh, this is a trial in, in patients with IBS, because that's what I've been interested in. And as you can see, that, that the placebo arm and the drug, the drug arm is slightly above the placebo arm. That hard and yellow is what we consider the therapeutic gain. This is how we calculate our NNT, our number needed to treat. And so when we're quoting the eff effectiveness of a drug, we're talking about the delta over placebo. But in this talk, let's look at the placebo effect. Most of the therapeutic effect, at least in, in functional disease and subjective diseases, is in the, in the therapeutic, in, in, the, in the placebo arm. And that's where you're seeing most of the effect. The therapeutic gain is relatively small compared to the placebo. So one of the areas we've been interested in is looking further at this placebo effect. So 1948, randomized controlled trials. Within 10 years, in 1955, or seven years, in 1955, in JAMA, Henry Beecher published an article called The Powerful Placebo. And within seven years, he realized that there was a very powerful placebo effect in randomized controlled trials, and people in various, in various areas had a therapeutic gain, a real therapeutic gain of about 35%, okay, or 35% of the cases patients had. So he said, in which we, I think we understand today, that there is a big placebo effect. It's seen in various diseases where there's a subjective response. We're not talking about, like, cancer, you know, reducing cancer size. We're talking about subjective responses. I'll show you more about that in a minute. Okay? Randomized controlled trials within seven years, 
paper published in JAMA called a powerful placebo because it was recognized pretty quickly that that's what we saw a lot of the effects. We've done some studies, uh, and others have done studies in GI because we're a gastroenterologist showing the same thing, antipeptic um, drugs, uh, a placebo effect of 55%, Crohn's, you see. And in, in GERD, you can see a variant placebo effects depending on the measurements that's used in the patient population. But in these studies, one of the questions that come up is, can you learn anything about the placebo effect? And, and you know, from the antipeptic, it was, seemed to be higher in men, those are upper social classes. Um, it didn't seem to correlate with psychological disturbances, but if you gave it more often, the QID versus BID, that seemed to be effect. And in the Crohn's literature, the number of office visits, the more doctor-patient interactions seemed to correlate um, with it. And in the GERD literature, it seemed to be if you have more organic disease, if you had erosive esophagitis, and, and it seemed to have a lower placebo response rate. We did the study in IBS, and we're going to turn, I switch gears here in a few minutes and talk about some IBS studies. And we saw the mean placebo rate about 40%. And again, the intervention frequency, how often you saw patients did correlate. Look at the figure on the lower right. What this shows is that the, the uh, percent improvement um, of a treatment correlated directly with the percent improvement in placebo. So you can see some very high um, response rates into the you know, 70, 80%, but the placebo response rate's very high. So it's a placebo sort of that is driving the um, therapeutic response um, with it. So <clears throat> this is to emphasize a point uh, the, that I've mentioned a couple times, which is that this is, we're talking about subjective responses, not objective responses. This is a paper published in the New England Journal on placebo effects in patients with asthma. Complicated study, but let me just tell you the highlights of it. Shown here are the results of the FEV1. Okay, and on the far left is the effect with albuterol. As expected, it improves FEV1. If you give placebo, sham acupuncture, or no intervention, these are in, and, uh, well, it's placebo inhaler, but sham acupuncture and no intervention, that they had no effect on FEV1. Okay, so no, no big surprise. But look at what happened when you looked at their subjective response. Here, the placebo inhaler and acupuncture placebo was as effective as an albuterol inhaler. And we know that for the vast majority of patients that with uh, asthma, it is symptomatic improvement that you're looking for. So no objective improvement, but subjective improvement with a placebo effect. So I've sort of, so I've sort of uh, set the stage here for a powerful placebo, okay? I think we all see it in our clinical practice. I think we all understand it. I sort of intuitively understood it as well at the time. And then came this article. And this, this article came out in the New England Journal, and it was called, is the, is the Placebo Powerless? Okay? And what they argued in this, in this meta-analysis, that there was no placebo effect. In doing so, they looked at all clinical trials published, and, and, and all clinical trials published that included placebo, a, th a treatment, no matter what the treatment was, and it had to have one more caveat, because there have been over 300,000 randomized trials published, that it had to have a no-treatment arm. So they looked only at the placebo treatment and the no-treatment arm to see if there was actually a placebo response. And surprisingly, what they found that there was no placebo response, okay? In this review that included 130 trials between placebo and no-treatment arms, when you looked at binary outcomes, that is a yes or no, did you have improvement, no improvement, they showed no difference. When you looked at a continuous outcome, probably a little bit more sensitive, they, small, they saw a small effect, 
okay? But that goes contrary to what we, what we you know, clinically and what intuitively we've seen over the years, which was kind of surprising. And then they looked at the you know, treatment of pain in the lower part, it was a small number of trials, again, a small effect, uh, not, not what you typically expect. So this was contrary to what we thought really happened. And this is what got us interested in doing in the placebo effect. And when we saw this, we said, well, perhaps there's something wrong here. And because <clears throat> that's not what, you'd exp what we've seen clinically, and that perhaps we should be able to um, argue against this in, doing in, in a clinical trial, which I'll explain to you uh, in just a minute. I think the major fault of this is that none of these studies were designed <clears throat> to look at the placebo effect. So let me just go back to the clinical trial, and I'll explain to you what, we what the study that we decided to do <clears throat> to help answer, or, um, answer this question, whether, whether or not there was a placebo effect. I've already showed you this before. Just want to highlight the lower part now, because we've mentioned the placebo effect is what's shown down below. So what is the placebo effect? Okay, It actually is a lot of different things. One is it's a natural history of the disease. It's either spontaneous regression, um, excuse me, spontaneous remission or regression to the mean. So in other words, when we enter someone into a clinical trial, almost always they have to meet an entry criteria, they have to have a certain amount of symptoms, and we like to take patients with a significant amount of symptoms so we can show an improvement, we don't hit a, a floor effect. So if we take patients with the symptoms wax and wane, like in something like IBS or IBD uh, or GERD, you tend to get patients worse and then they tend to get better, that's regression to the mean. Um, in, spontaneous, uh, in spontaneous remission, some patients just tend to get better. So that's the, sort of the natural history of the disease. And then there's this placebo effect. There's lots of things like co-interventions. Um, let me give an example of a co-intervention that occurs every time I do a clinical trial in IBS and that's the, or, or any functional disease. Uh, let me give an example of a, of a patient that comes in with a clinical, for a clinical trial in IBS, and we tell them that you should continue with all your treatments the way you are now. Don't change your diet, your lifestyle, et cetera. Patient comes back at the end of the entry, at the end of the baseline period, and says, "Doc, I feel so much better." And I said, "What happened? You've had this for years." And he says, "And he says to me, well, you know, I, you talked about IBS. I read about it a little bit. I decided to change my diet.' That, that happens all the time. That's co-intervention, and it happens all. The, we cannot control for. We try not. It's almost impossible to control for. Patients always do it, and the, and and it's never really measured. But that happens continuously uh, in our trials." Report bias is, a, is another big one. Patients want to feel better, okay? And I won't show you, but one of our trials that we did, we interviewed patients at the end, and we said, you know, geez, you said you got better, and we didn't even give you a treatment uh, um, during it. What, what happened? And they said, well, you know, I really like Dr. Lembo. Seemed like a nice guy. His studies are interesting. I would like to see him succeed in this study. <laughs> I kid you not. That, that's the patient's report, report bias. Patients want to get better. People who come to trials want to feel better. Okay, that's why they come into trials. And so you get this whole report bias. Measurement artifacts is pretty clear. The Hawthorne effect, this ritual effect, and the one part that I want to mention most specifically, and the one we thought was most important, was this doctor-patient uh, interaction. I'll tell you a little bit about that in a second. This just emphasizes a little bit differently how a clinical, you know, the important parts of the placebo, and what's shown on the far right is sort of some of what we call neuroscience, or Benedetti actually comes from his article, calls it neuroscience. These are areas that you can manipulate, and these, a lot of these are the expectation of the patients, the learning of the patient. Those are things that you can manipulate in a clinical, in a clinical trial pretty easily, and that's what we decided to do with this. So this is a little relief. Uh, find out who set up this experiment. It seems that half the patients were given a placebo and the other half were given a different placebo. So this is exactly 
what we decided to do to help answer the question, is there really a placebo effect, okay? And what we did, and this was published in BMJ, it was called the components of the placebo effect. We did a randomized trial in patients with irritable uh, bowel syndrome, and let me walk you through exactly what we did. So we gave patients placebo. We gave them two types of placebos. Okay, we gave them what we called an augmented placebo, if you look on the top left, and a limited placebo or this no treatment control. Because remember, this goes back to that New England Journal article where you had to have a no treatment control to compare it to a placebo. And we didn't want to just do two arms, we decided to do three arms, a little bit of placebo, and we said a lot of placebo. Okay, that's exactly what this was. And <clears throat> The lower part, which I'm not going to show you data, is actually the acupuncture part. We actually chose acupuncture for, for a variety of reasons, one of them being there was a lot of, lot of interaction with a practitioner. Um, we thought that would be particularly powerful, and that was the interest of some of the people in our group. Um, so that's, that was our placebo, was acupuncture. They didn't, it was sham acupuncture. It didn't penetrate the skin. It was in sites that were uninvolved. And the augmented placebo, the, and the augmentation was, was the doctor-patient interaction. Because, as I've indicated, the ritual of medicine is, a lot of it is a doctor-patient, and that's the one thing we could easily manipulate, and we thought probably the most powerful. So we had the two arms, a limited practitioner and an augmented practitioner. Everybody got the same treatments otherwise in the, in the placebo. The limited practitioner, I like to call, is the typical GI visit. One foot out the door. Um, <laughs> that's not, it's not, it wasn't that bad. It was, it was a shortened visit and versus the augmented, which was slightly longer. So the difference in time in the entire study was about 20 minutes, okay? We're not talking about an extended period of time. The difference was that the augmented practitioner had more empathy uh, for the patients. They it encouraged the expectation that this was an interesting treatment that had, you know, um, that could have significant effects. We touched the patient, which we didn't do in the other treatment. And my favorite was a thoughtful silence. silence. Let me think about that. That turns out to be very powerful because you're, you're thinking about the patient. We didn't make these up. These are, these are in the literature, and these are, these are actually widely used. A lot of these we have been used in the pain literature and uh, post-surgical literature as well. Um, so we put this together. Again, 20 minutes, about 20 minutes more time, and that was about it. And the shortened visit was um, you know, relatively brief um, and not as much empathy, and then the no treatment arm. And what we found was that these are, these are four primary endpoints, so you can just, let's just focus on the top right, because this is an, uh, an endpoint called adequate relief. And what you do is you ask the patients, have you had adequate relief of your IBS? And that's what we asked. And so it's pretty simple, and it actually correlates pretty well with other outcomes. And you can see these other global measures, including quality of life or quality. So what you see is that in the augmented group, as you probably all would expect, um, it had significant improvement. We're seeing about 60% response rate and what we basically was just an augmented doctor-patient interaction with placebo acupuncture. The limited had a little bit less, and then the wait list had about, about 30%, a little bit less what you see in clinical trials because we're not seeing the patients uh, quite as often. Oops. And there was some differences between practitioners. You know, women tend to be better at the men uh, do, and there's you know, one, one of the practitioners had a particularly strong response rate, but in all of them there was uh, a significant effect within the augmented uh, type of group. We concluded from this that the placebo effect was alive and well, and that it can be administered dose-dependently. And the end of the study that was designed to measure placebo, that, that it actually existed, and we used both placebo, we used placebo acupuncture, and what we manipulated was a doctor-patient interaction, which is a big part of the ritual of medicine. The things we didn't do, we didn't disentangle what the placebo effect is, 
So it, it, as I mentioned, I mentioned, it includes a lot of different things, expectancy, hope, conditioning, anxiety reduction, report bias, all these things are, are entangled into that effect. We didn't disentangle uh, that. There were a lot of criticisms of this. Um, one, of the, one of the major ones, which was valid, that the translation of the study to clinical practice was unclear because we did use placebo acupuncture, which probably was a mistake at the end because we probably should have used a placebo pill, which is what I'll tell you about what we're doing in the more recent study studies, uh, but we actually think that it pretty much clearly shows both the placebo effect and the doctor-patient interaction. Now, over the years, they've sort of understood a little bit more about the placebo effect. We don't know the exact cause of it uh, or, or the mechanism of it, but we do know that opioids, the cannabinoids, dopamine, CCK are all seem to be involved. This study was done by Benedetti, who's done a lot of the classic work showing that these are different pathways and there's a lot of important things in, in the body. There are redundancies that occur, so you can block opioids uh, with an opioid blocker and block one pathway, but you, in, if you use a cannabinoid blocker, you can block a different pathway. They do not seem to overlap uh, that significantly. One of the other areas, as mentioned here, was dopamine, and um, one of our postdocs uh, came up with the idea of looking at the dopamine uh, gene, and this way, because we had, had we had gene analysis in these patients, and it turns out the patients that have the met-met alleles tend to have more <coughs> dopamine available. They don't break it down quite as much, and so when we looked at, in that trial, just showed you, when we looked at the different alleles, we were able to show the patients in the augmented group, which is shown on the far left with the met-met, presumably more dopamine, that there was a even more improvement than those patients that had the val-val or low, less dopamine. So we thought this might be uh, might be uh, very relevant. Uh, this actually got written up in the Wall Street Journal, and they called it the placebo gene. Has been discovered. I'm not sure I would go that far, um, but uh, it, cer it certainly is very interesting. People have also looked at the uh, effect on the brain, and uh, I don't claim to really understand these. Uh, MRI studies or PET studies, even in IBS, but they have shown different pathways that have seemed to be involved uh, in the uh, placebo effect, and I'm not going to go through in great detail with that. So <clears throat> right around the time that um, the um, uh, um, study on uh, osteoarthritis, the one I showed you, uh, was published, uh, this, was the, this was the commentary in the New, England, in the, uh, New York Times uh, by Margaret Talbot. She was commenting on that study. Um, and basically what she says, placebos aren't real medicine, but they can often help patients heal, so why not exploit uh, their power? Okay, but this is the issue we have, in, at least in the United States. Uh, Dr. Pohl and I were talking earlier, but in Germany, uh, placebos are approved and okay to use. Um, in the U.S., this is, this is what we're left with. The AMA says the use of placebo without the patient's knowledge may undermine trust, compromise the patient-physician uh, relationship, and result in medical harm uh, to the patient, so it's actually um, sort of forbidden for us to use it, despite the fact that people are using it, as I indicated to you, with it. So I want you to take this placebo two times a day for 10 days. If your condition doesn't improve, I'll give you a stronger one. So what we decided to do, because we couldn't give placebo in a deception way, and, and we wanted to know what the effect was of giving a placebo in a open-label manner, if we didn't deceive patients and we gave them a placebo, could we make them feel better. And so this study um, uh, was published a couple of years ago um, in PLS-1. It actually got a lot, of, a lot of press at the time. We were kind of surprised. This was actually a pilot study um, that was done, but it got, it got a lot of press at the time. So this was a randomized controlled trial of open-label placebo to no treatment or usual care. Um, and this is just the study design with patients, and uh, you can see the number of patients that were randomized to one or the other. So the question is, 
Uh, so one comment, and this is who we enrolled, patients with IBS. Um, we did, we, we advertised it as a mind-body management study, okay, because um, that's actually what, this, what placebo is. It's mind-body treatments. Um, so that's how we advertised it, but we told patients that they were getting a placebo. We told it was inert. It was not active. It was a sugar pill. It contained no medication. It was very clear that this was, being very clear to the patients that this was placebo. And we sold it to patients by telling them that the, pl the placebo effect is powerful, as I've hopefully shown you some data. Um, and we explained to them in clinical trials that patients who get placebo seem to uh, do get better, and it is a mind-body effect uh, that, occur that concurs. It's a conditioning response. And we described it as Pavlov's dog, that, they, um, it was, it, that you're used to taking an NSAID or a pain medication and feeling better. It's, you're taking a placebo pill. That's a conditioning effect. You will help your body heal. You had to have a you know, positive attitude helps, but it was not necessary. You didn't have to believe it, but you did have to take your pills regularly. Because one of the things we've seen in clinical trials is that that placebo effect I showed you di correlates directly with the number of pills the patient takes. Okay, so if they don't take their placebo pills, they don't seem to have a placebo effect. Um, so that was very clear. We said one thing you do have to do is take your pills, even if you don't believe in it, and um, we'll see what happens. And we gave them two pills tw uh, twice a day for, uh, for uh, three weeks. And this is my favorite cartoon. So it says, honey, go and talk to him. He just found out he's a placebo. And see the baby pill on the crying <laughs> on the side? <laughs> um, and again, this is the same results, uh, the same you know, um, four primary endpoints as in our previous trial. Um, and, it, and the attic relief is shown in the lower left on this one. And again, again, very similar results, about a 60% response rate versus about a 30 plus percent response rate for no treatment. And showing that, that giving patients an open label placebo can significantly improve, uh, improve their symptoms. And we saw it for all the other global uh, endpoints as well. So again, we do think that the placebo response rate is alive and well, and we can administer it uh, without deception. We can show it's effective in the subjective responses, in this case in irritable bowel syndrome, but probably translates to other subjective, uh, other uh, diseases or, or symptoms that are subjective. Um, expe uh, patient expectation and compliance was enhanced uh, to ensure that we got that placebo response rate uh, that occurred. Um, the, the extent to which this impacted the results is not really known. So um, this leads us to where we are today, at least in, in our studies. And this is our, our upcoming trial. And it hopefully, it'll, it, it'll hopefully answer a few different questions. Uh, the big question that we're going to do is look, well, a couple of questions. One is we chose to use peppermint oil for a couple of reasons. One in IBS, and we were talking to one of the gentlemen here about the role of peppermint oil, who brought it up, uh, that they use it. But we decided that peppermint oil is not widely used in the United States, uh, yet in Europe and elsewhere, um, studies suggest that it's quite effective in GI symptoms. Um, so we were going to use peppermint oil to do the large trial in the United States, a typical double-blind randomized placebo-controlled trial. Um, and then we were going to give patients an open-label peppermint oil to compare it to double-blind peppermint oil to answer the question is that how much of this blinding or expectation uh, is important in their treatment response. And that, that is relevant to not just IBS, but almost any clinical trial that's being developed, that's being done today. We have a no treatment arm because that's, that is a, essential to compare any type of placebo 
too. And then we have the open-label placebo versus double-blind placebo to see if, see if, we can, if there's any difference in that effect. So this is the two-by-two-by-one factorial design. Uh, this study is going to hopefully start the next uh, couple months. We're just, just buying our placebo uh, right now. So just to conclude, um, you know, I do think that you know, I've shown you data, hopefully to convince you, uh, I'd like to hear your comments on it, uh, that the placebo response is powerful um, and really is alive and well. There's a lot more research that needs to be done to understand this response, the mechanisms, and different methods to harness it both in clinical practice and control it in clinical uh, trials. There's the comp gene looks really interesting and the role of dopamine. There are going to be other genes as well, um, and there have been some that have been uh, reported. Uh, but not, the issue has been that there have been genes that are reported in clinical trials, like a lot of the depression literature, but they never, these trials don't have a no treatment arm. So it's really hard to know what the significance of those genes are. Uh, this is the, you know, the one study that has, the, has uh, a no treatment arm that looked at genes, and that's why we're particularly excited about, about it. But clearly, a lot more work needs to be done uh, on it. Um, so, and with that, I'll just take questions. And I just want to point out a few people, uh, one of the key people, um, is Ted Kapchak, who's shown in the middle, standing in the back. Um, and he's, a, he's sort of the key placebo researcher that initially got me interested uh, in placebo and sort of, uh, and then our statisticians uh, to the far, the far left, our sociologists to the far left, myself, and, our, um, and some other researchers that are helping us out with the projects. So thank you. I'd love to hear your comments and questions, of course. <laughs> Quick question. Uh, you know that I like to do endoscopic techniques for different things, and we work on when we design a randomized trial the sham effect of endoscopy. So you can treat reflux or you can treat different things. And um, the question is if the, that's often come up from companies who don't want to spend the money on a randomized trial, their point is if you do something and the patient feels subjectively better, maybe it's a pill, maybe it's an endoscopic procedure. You've made the patient feel better. Isn't that an outcome worthy of its own? Why do you have to prove that there's more worth to what you're doing? In other words, is our goal to make the patient feel better, or is our goal to prove the delta of therapeutic effect between a sham or placebo and a real deal? And how do you, if, what is the goal of a clinician? What, what are we trying to do? Well, we're trying to make patients feel better for most, for many diseases, not not all, of course. I want to emphasize again: not cancer, not hypertension, um, uh, etc. But in in most chronic diseases, particularly in the GI world, it's subjective response. Uh, GERD without Barrett's or erosive esophagitis, as I tell patients, it's all subjective. Take your PPI or your treatment uh, as as needed because it's just a subject if you're not trying to prevent anything from occurring. Um, so the, our goal is to improve their symptoms. And that's why this, you know, that's why we were particularly interested in this open label placebo, because we just want to see people feel better and sort of understand some of the mechanisms. I mean, is it, is it true that you can feel better by just trying to convince someone that they're going to feel better uh, in our IBS, you know, in an IBS model? Uh, I suspect it occurs for every other model. So, and yeah, you do want to you want to harness this placebo effect that we think um, in Germany you can use it, uh, um, you know, clinically. It wouldn't be unreasonable to use it here, from a scientific point of view. As like we did that we you know, Rick, Rich and I did a randomized trial in GERD therapy years ago. Um, you know, for a scientific point of view, you want to beat placebo because you actually want to show that you're doing something beyond, 
you know, that, that your intervention, which is usually expensive and has some risks, um, you know, has some therapeutic gain to the patient beyond just, you know, what, what you can do with placebo. I mean, that being said, you know, I mean, I, I was, I had to go to the FDA uh, after our open label placebo in, in the various treatments and, you know, for IBS, and they wanted to know why should we approve this drug uh, when your placebo is better than the drug? Um, and that, that, was, that was actually their comment to me. And, and so I had you know, explained to them this was not a randomized double-blind controlled trial. This was an open-label trial. We didn't compare it to a, a therapy. These are, you know, it's, like, it's like comparing oranges to apples. You just can't do it. Um, and, you know, and if I had taken that drug and given them all the, um, you know, the uh, expectation and all the effects that we did, I probably would have gotten an even higher response rate. But that's not what's done in a trial. A trial is just trying to be as black and white as possible, so you can't really compare them. But I think you can use it. I think you can use placebo, um, and I think hopefully that'll, be, that'll change someday. Could you say something about response related to the patient's social class and level of education? So there's, a, there's some studies that suggest that uh, the higher the social class, um, the more educated, the better the response rate uh, is. In our study, it turned out that there wasn't that big of a differential, uh, so we didn't actually see a difference in, in socioeconomic status, for example. Um, we didn't see it in male females or in or significant psychological parameters, at least the ones that we, we measured, um, obvious ones like depression or anxiety, but, but we didn't, you know, uh, that wasn't the, the goal of the study. Yeah, so when you prescribe a new medicine, you talk about potential side effects. Sometimes people tend to get like everything you talk about. This is a nocebo effect, and how could you, how, how do you deal with that? For the nocebo effect? Um, and how do you talk about medication side effects? Because like the opposite of the placebo, you prescribe a medicine for a certain purpose, but then you have to talk about side effects, and sometimes people just get Everything you talk about, you know, if you talk slowly, not like a PDF. Right. Right. So, so, so the question, the question was, is that you know, if you in a trial, uh, if you tell patients, here's the list of side effects, you tend to get more of those side effects reported because patients are more aware of it. Um, so. I mean, that's sort of the nocebo effect uh, that, that can occur. It's, you know, it's different than the placebo effect, which is trying to make patients feel better as opposed to make them feel, feel worse. Um, I, don't know how, I don't know how to re reduce that. In a trial, you have to, you know, patients have to be aware of the risks, so you have to be honest with them uh, to tell them. But to the extent that you can minimize that, we always, obviously always try to do that because that, that's a known, it's a known effect to occur. Yeah. I'm going to take questions around the room, but we'll go over here to John. Yeah, um, often patients come in suggesting medications they've heard about or see on TV, and even though you may think, you know, they may not have any benefit, you say, well, you can try them. And I'm wondering, does the placebo effect remain the same when a patient suggests it versus the doctor suggests it? I, I don't know. I, I'm not sure. But patients, but, but patients that, um, that, that has to do with, like, the expectation of a drug, if, if someone really expects a drug to be effective, um, we know the placebo effect will be higher. That's sort of what we did. You know, we tried to increase the expectation of a drug, uh, the expectancy that they'll get, they'll have improvement in symptoms. So that's known. I, again, I don't know if it, uh, about DTC or if the you know, patient. I don't think that's ever been really looked at. Um, so, oh, sorry. To speak to that in your study, did you find a difference um, with rates of compliance? 
the difference in your outcomes, you know, according to how compliant the participants were. Oh, with their pill, the pill counts and stuff. Uh, most people took their pills in our study. It wasn't. A, it was not obvious. These are not huge trials, by the way. But most people in that in the open label study, it was forty in each arm, forty two in each arm. Most people took their pills, at least on our pill count. And you advertised it as a mindfulness. Mind body, mind body treatment with placebo, right? Exactly. right. That's where I struggle a little bit because I, you know, it's a medical placebo, but it's still a treatment and an intervention. So I'm struggling with separating out the effect of participant characteristics and mm. motivation to change with the actual placebo. Yeah. yeah, I don't have an answer for that, but that's yeah. Absolutely brilliant presentation, and I, I think what you showed was that there are two parts to the, to the placebo effect. One is when the doctor walks into the room already you help the patient, then the doctor hands the patient a prescription, and that also can help even if the prescription is a placebo. That's the first comment. The second is that in, apropos the conversation we had before uh, this the grand rounds began, there is a literature that peppermint is actually quite active in the GI tract. Mm. And I'll give you a 1936 reference. Yeah, that's right. yeah. <laughs> but the, the question is, are there any data about the effect of placebo on hard endpoints? And of course, the hardest endpoint of all is, is death and survival. Because I had the impression that some of my colleagues, when I was running a cardiology division, by their very presence in care, could keep people alive with end-stage heart failure much longer than they should have been living. You know, to take a, a six months average survival, and these patients were living two, three years. There's one guy particularly who was just a wonderfully engaging physician. And are there any, and I would regard that as either a, a physician effect or a placebo effect, maybe the two are probably good, related. But are there any data that placebo can actually prolong survival or prevent operations or, you know, something really hard? Uh, not, not that I'm aware of. There are some studies in cancer um, people have been looking at the cancer, and patients uh, report feeling better. Um, and one study did show a slight increase in survival, but it was very, very minor. Um, I, I, you know, we all—I always go back to the fact that we're talking subjective here, so we don't want to oversell placebo effect in helping you know things with hard outcomes, as you call it, you know, cancer. Um, one of the effects. I mean, we don't expect it to change the biology uh, of, a, of a cancer. It might, but I, I'm not. I, I'm not. Well, I, I'm clear not to advertise that. I, I, we don't know that for any for a fact. So um, I think you can say that their symptoms may feel better, but I. It's certainly not a treatment for, for you know, a cancer or for hypertension or anything like that. So I was wondering if you could, um, I think the placebo effect is really sort of fascinating, but it seems like there's a really fine line between uh, supporting a placebo effect and snake oil salesmen, uh, especially like Dr. Oz who's on TV and sort of, you know, shilling all this stuff that probably does nothing from a scientific standpoint, but again, probably has a big placebo effect. And I was wondering whether, like, you know, if we, if we really go after this and say, hey, we want to make placebo effects legal that physicians can just prescribe placebos, what's the difference to, between a physician prescribing a placebo and a snake oil salesman selling snake oil? Um, or is there no difference? <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, so what happened, you know, like, if you go back in the history of uh, when the FDA was developed, uh, you know, when it first founded in 1938, um, or the basics of it, it, it was all a response to uh, people advertising treatments that actually um, were probably placebo, but actually had some harm to them, okay? And, and that was the whole basis of, of, uh, of the FDA. It wasn't 
you know, at the time they didn't do randomized trials, so it wasn't to prove that therapy was effective, it was to prevent, you know, um, you know, bad outcomes from things that had harm in, harm in them. Um, so <clears throat> I think that's sort of the difference uh, with it. And I think you should be honest with patients too. I don't think you should sell them something that, that uh, is, not a, is, not, uh, known, is known not to be effective. I mean, it's, it's, it's that expectation that they're getting something that's strong. But as we showed here, you can show someone that, that tells them they're getting placebo and, and give them that expectation uh, if you do it in the right way. Um, so I guess that that's probably the best I can answer that question. It's a good question. A couple of days now. It might not uh, work for endoscopic procedures, um, but perhaps medications and other things. But it seems that there are a lot of individual variation um, by genetics, personality, class, etc. That, despite its obvious limitations, some end of one trial. Um, with placebo within the same individual um, might have some benefit um, for consideration as a, as a means of uh, individualizing potential effects. Mm. Yeah, so something like the dopamine or other effects. Yeah, that's a good, that's a good comment. Yeah. David. Uh, I really enjoyed your talk. I, I wanted to ask you about that one figure you showed where uh, the active intervention was up at the top and then the placebo was a bit low and there was a yellow filled in and yeah. you said we're talking about the delta. So when we look at any uh, randomized placebo-controlled trial, we don't actually know, and it's never described how the researchers talk to the patient mm. or how long they talk to them or whether they explained that the placebo was not expected to do anything or was expected to do something, and how much hands-on there was. And you showed so beautifully in your own work that all of that matters. So how should we go back and interpret literature of thousands of placebo-controlled trials without having any idea of what actually happened in the recruiting rooms and the, right. the weekly visits, as you so beautifully showed? So yeah, great, great comment. <coughs> Excuse me. So if you look at, uh, I'm not sure, I, I'm not exactly sure how to interpret all of it, but if you look back at the uh, um, single center trials, and, you know, and I know the functional literature extremely well, uh, if you look at the single center trials, the placebo, and you just look at the placebo response rate, which is, you know, I showed you that uh, slide of a study that we did right here on the far right. There's the placebo response rate, and it varies widely. And what's known about this is that single centers have more variation than multi-center trials. The larger the trial, the more uniform the placebo response rate uh, is. So when you, I think if you look back at the literature, and, and the other caveat is that we, you know, I was involved in a trial where we were trying to reduce the placebo response rate, and we talked to the investigators about, you know, not being overly uh, empathetic with patients, not, you know, spending a lot of time, not too much, not too much expectation. Um, it didn't matter. The placebo response rate in that trial was the same because I think people are used to doing what they're doing. Coordinators are doing a lot of the work. Um, and I think it's, you know, it's not like we, you, you know, you can't retrain someone in a very short period of time. Um, so when you, when I look at these trials, you see a very high placebo response rate. You presume that they um, enhance that placebo effect. I think you have to presume that um, with, with these, uh, with these. But, um, I mean, you know, but the comment's a good one because the question about blinding comes up a lot. Um, and, you know, and this came up extensively with our, you know, placebo 
uh, with the peppermint oil study that we're doing now, and, and maybe you actually think a lot about blinding in trials. Um, you know, you, you know, so we, we had to delve into the deeply into the peppermint literature, and then how do you know it's really blinded? I mean, you know, if you give someone a, a treatment and they know what it is from unblinding, in the case of peppermint oil, it's it's not that hard to unblind. Um, then is it really a, a blinded? Trial. It's not a blinded trial, right? It's not even. It's a randomized trial, but it's not a blinded trial. So, so I think there's a lot of that going on out there, and that goes throughout. You know, and some of it is the treatment effect, which you can't get away from, which is a good thing. But some of it's just the fact that their patients are unblinded pretty quickly. Um, so, like in our studies, we we we, would, we we always ask patients, do they know if they were blinded? Do they know which arm they were in? We like to see pretty even, um, but that's not done in larger trials, so so we don't know. There are a lot of questions in you know in clinical trials. Um, so in the, last, in the common, second comment of clinical trials is that uh, for all of us, it's you know the it's the way things are done, and, and it's and it's perfect, right? And the truth, it's not perfect because most a lot of the world doesn't treat patients. Well, we don't treat patients like a clinical trial. Right? We never, it never represents what goes on in the office. I never give one therapy, almost never give one therapy, I should say, you know, and you're doing other things in addition to a trial. So you have to be careful about how you always interpret trials. Um, it's not clinical practice. No. Um, I was just wondering if you could comment on, in your studies, what the adverse, um, what kind of adverse effects you had, and especially in the augmented trial, if you saw increased adverse effects in the augmented or what that looked like between the two placebo arms? Yeah, we did look extensively at that. Uh, they're still looking, some people are still looking at that um, effect. Um, so I haven't seen all of the data with it because it was, a lot of it was handwritten, so it's, it was difficult to analyze. Um, but it, in general, there were there actually were a number of side effects reported. Um, you know, and some of it was attributed to, you know, um, a variety of things, including the, that acupuncture that we, the acupuncture that we gave them. Um, I don't know that there was a significant difference between the two arms, at least from what I, you know, initially saw of that. Uh, but yeah, that, that's a big question is adverse reports. Can you speak a little bit about why you think the placebo response seems to be getting bigger, especially in certain literature, like the depression literature and others? Over the years, the placebo response keeps getting bigger and bigger, even though they try to minimize it. Yeah, I, I wasn't aware that that was occurring in, in the uh, depression literature, so I'm not sure I have a good answer for you um, on, the on the depression part. Uh, it's good. Thanks, Tony. That was uh, really great. I, I wonder if we're using the, or you're using the word placebo in two different ways. One is you're in the office taking care of a patient and you're giving you know, great care and personal relationship with the patient and giving a pill that may or may not work. And I think we probably all do that all the time, you know, whether we know it or not. Um, but the other is the clinical trial placebo. And the definitions are almost different, right? It's, it's the comparator to see if the drug works or doesn't work or if the drug's safe or not safe. And some hundreds, millions of dollars of you know uh, research programs have fallen down because of high placebo rates. The drug might work. So you've convinced me that placebo is not no treatment. Placebo is a treatment. And I wonder, in thinking about the future of clinical trials and comparative effectiveness research and how we should be thinking about things, what do you think the future is about how clinical trials should be designed? Because for, if we want to see if the drug works versus doesn't work, maybe a placebo arm isn't the right thing. Maybe it's some waiting arm, I, I'd just be curious to hear what your thoughts are, because we need to, we need new drugs. And as we look for, you know, smaller niches of new drugs, the, unfortunately the effect size gets 
smaller and smaller as you get down the road. So what do we do? You know, because we are good at placebo, then it's going to be harder and harder to find new drugs that work. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I don't. It's going to have to be someone smarter than me to to figure this out because uh, we've thought about it a lot. Um, the best design you know we could come up with that was doable was the one I just showed you at the end, which is what we're doing, and and it was to answer the. Uh, question about open label versus double blind, the expectation. Um, <clears throat> but of course, it's more than that, right? I mean, you, I mean, we wouldn't put it together a trial like that. It's, it's to understand the patient that's coming through and who has that response. Um, is there some characteristics about the patients that we can understand why they're responding to either open label, <clears throat> which has more expectation, versus you know being blinded? So that, that was part of the things that we're trying to stand in the genetic part of it to see if there was something that we could um, measure that would be and that could affect the placebo response rate. Um, but to how to design a trial that's, that's different, um, I think it's hard to do because the more you uh, make it like real world, the less like it is in a controlled manner and reproducible across multiple sites. Um, so I'm not sure exactly how to improve it. Um, you're, probably, you're younger and smarter, so I'd love to hear your ideas. I was fascinated by your use of the word ritual quite a few times and thought about people, um, especially when you're doing trials with people who have active disease, um, how to deal with that stress. Um, and anytime you deal with stress, often, um, you know, some of us will go to a ritual. You know, we'll figure out the only way we can get through the day that. So that ritual of taking pills, going to the appointments, um, what kind of effect is that? And I, as I was listening, I was thinking too, were the people borrowing the confidence of the physician or the provider? Um, and that's what, they may not have had that confidence themselves, but being a part of this and doing that and having somebody say, this will work for you, they were in a sense borrowing their confidence. That's part of it. I think you're right. So that's part of it. And when I was describing our, our arms, you know, the augmented arm would have, you know, this powerful effect, and we, and the other one was, well, this is a clinical trial. Uh, we're going to see if it works. Um, so <clears throat> we were emphasizing that part about it. We, we presume that that's a big part of uh, the placebo response rate uh, in patients, and that's what we all do clinically, right? I mean, you're, so. It's part of that ritual. Some of you may remember when Abraham Bergeese was here, and some of you may like to go to his TED Talk to listen about the hands-on, the actual laying on of hands of a clinician, that ritual. And the most poignant story was his story of a fellow dying of HIV who would bear his chest when Abraham would come in so that he could do his exam, even at the very last moments of his life. But he felt the power of that interaction with the clinician. And if you haven't heard that TED Talk or haven't seen our medical grand rounds that he did here, it's worth really reliving that. Mm -hmm. Hear about ritual. This, your talk today has highlighted so many of the things that we do as clinicians and our purpose of helping patients deal with their symptoms, both our interaction with them and other things that we do to, to engage. We really thank you for coming. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs>